On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and we're here to talk about income tax planning for IRAs and qualified plans. Let's jump in. So the first place we're going to start is we're going to talk about tax brackets. Basically, and I didn't realize this for the longest time, maybe two or three weeks after teaching everything, is that the marriage penalty has been largely eliminated under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Now, how does that impact IRAs? What that does, it changes drawdown. It also changes Roth conversion strategies for married couple, especially if the husband is, say the, just say the husband's dying and he's 65 years old. His wife is a healthy 65-year-old. If that's the case, then where we are is we would want to do Roth conversions before he died for as much as possible to take the, the RMD pressure off of the wife after the husband passes away. So this all makes sense. Now, how we analyze it is tough, but at least we, we get that knowledge out there and we start to ponder how to approach that. So it's not much different than the Roth conversions we've been doing for almost 20 years, but it's a new variable, okay? It's a new variable. I had always talked about this in my earlier speeches, but now because there is less of a marriage penalty, it becomes slightly more complex. Now, remember when we jump in uh, to the world of IRAs, you get, for a traditional IRA, you get a deduction up front, followed by tax-free compounding, followed by required minimum distributions. The Roth IRA, no required distributions, and tax-free compounding and tax-free distributions. You can still do non-deductible IRAs. Your basis comes back tax-free. You get tax-free compounding, and you do end up with RMDs. Now, one way to get into the Roth IRA is people do, if they have no other money in their IRAs, they do what's called a backdoor Roth conversion, where they first do a non-deductible IRA, they wait six months to a year, and then they convert that into a Roth IRA. This is something that when you meet with clients for the first time, you want to understand both the husband's and the wife's basis ratios. So if my IRA ratio was, let's just say, uh, 10%, but my wife's basis to basis to value. So my basis is 2,000, fair market value is 20. I'm not a very good candidate for a Roth conversion. But on the other hand, my wife's basis is 18,000 and her fair market value is 20. She is a wonderful candidate for Roth conversion. You probably want to immediately flip her into a Roth IRA. Remember, from a foundation concept perspective, um, the beneficiary designations control to whom the IRA goes when you die. I know everyone knows that, but we need to bring that consciously to the surface. And in, when I teach these classes, the, like the two-day class and even the, the shorter three- or four-hour class for lawyers, on, it's very, very important that the lawyer controls that beneficiary form so that it's woven right into the fabric of the entire estate plan. Because what so often happens, so much of the work we do, is cleaning up when the beneficiary designation doesn't match up with the will and the trust. So the income tax consequences naturally will vary substantially depending on how the beneficiary designation form is completed. So when you're looking at these foundation concepts, you basically have how do we get money into an IRA? From a management perspective, how do we do rollovers, Roth conversions, watching out for PTs, 
watching out for UBTI, unrelated business taxable income, and then, of course, the asset protection side. Now, a moment on asset protection, this hasn't really changed under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but if you're a financial advisor and you're working with a, a doctor, dentist, architect, engineer, CPA, lawyer, and you're bringing them out of a qualified plan into an IRA, be very careful, because remember, when they're in an ERISA plan, they have total asset protection. The asset is excluded from a bankruptcy. The bankruptcy court never even obtains jurisdiction over the asset. When it's in an IRA, even if you're in the best state for asset protection for an IRA, you are going to receive, um, you're still, it's still going to be subject to the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court. Now, distribution-wise, um, remember, once we turn 70 and a half, for regular IRAs, we have to start taking distributions. For Roth IRAs, there are no distributions. Now, we can put, um, on the contribution side of things, remember, one of the big things under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will be making large contributions to pension plans to beat the Section 199 Cap A threshold limitations, to bring your income down below the, the 315 or 157. You can put about, the maximum you can put into a defined contribution plan is going to be about $55,000. However, you are allowed to put money into a defined benefit plan too. So you can put those together and you can come up with an incredible combination where for a person in their 50s or 60s, they can get a couple hundred thousand dollars put away on an annual basis. So they can get a couple hundred thousand put away annually. Now, if you fail to make an IRA contribution one year, you can't carry that over to future years. There is some of that allowed with a 403B plan, however, so be very mindful of that. And also recall that a taxpayer is allowed to make a contribution to his or her IRA for the previous year up to the normal filing due date of the return. So up until April 15th or whatever date to the last day for a particular year, you can make those contributions. Now, the nuance of this is you cannot do that on an extended return. The other foundation principle that we definitely want to talk about is the 6% excess contribution tax. If you put too much money into your IRAs, um, you're going to get hit with a 6% excise tax on the excess over the maximum amount. That's under Section 4973 of the Code. You are allowed to clean that up until the due date of the return. So provided the taxpayer withdraws the excess contribution before April 15th of the year, following the year of contribution, um, none of the contribution will be subject to the 6% excise tax. Now, actually, you can do that up until October 15th. So if the maximum contribution is not withdrawn, it's going to offset deductible amounts in future years. But you need to be careful because the 6% excise tax just keeps going on and on every year. So it's a, it's a very ugly tax. Now, rollover strategies. Um, you are allowed to roll over funds from a qualified plan or IRA to the participant uh, that the participant redeposits in another IRA or plan. And a trustee-to-trustee -trustee transfer or direct transfer passes directly from the old plan to a new plan. 
and is never held by the participant. You want to try to do everything you can in terms of direct rollovers or direct transfers and not have that, those funds pass out to your beneficiary where they actually have to redeposit them. That will get us into trouble. Now, rollover strategies, remember under the Bobro case, there's a limit of one rollover every 12 months, okay? So you can only do one rollover every 12 months. This is not a calendar year test. The distribution date is the benchmark, not the rollover date. Um, now this is an aggregate limit as opposed to an account by account limit. And trustee to trustee transfers are absolutely unlimited. So with Bob Rowe, I have the citation um, right here. It's Bob Rowe versus Commissioner TC Memo 2014-21. Now there is an exception to the 60-day rollover rule. If you miss rolling the money over quickly enough, um, IRC section 408-D3I provides that the Secretary of the Treasury may waive the 60-day requirement or failure to, to waive such requirement would be against equity or good conscience, including casualty, disaster, or other events beyond the reasonable control of the taxpayer. Now, then the IRS did issue Revenue Proc 2013 or 2003-16, which went through all these things and just laid it out on how the service will view this and errors committed by a financial institution, uh, inability to complete a rollover due to death, disability, hospitalization, incarceration, restrictions imposed by a foreign country or postal error, uh, the use of the amount distributed, and the time lapsed since the distribution occurred. Now there is a self-certification procedure, and this was RevProc 2016-47. What's going on here is the taxpayers can self-certify that early distribution taxes shouldn't apply because the 60-day rollover window was missed due to one of the following reasons. Now, I'm going to read these, uh, and the list is long. Error committed by a financial institution, distribution having been made in the form of a check which was misplaced or never cashed, a distribution was deposited into and remained in an account that the taxpayer mistakenly thought was an eligible retirement plan. Taxpayer's principal residence was severely damaged. A member of the taxpayer's family died. Taxpayer or a member of the taxpayer's family was seriously ill. Taxpayer was incarcerated. Restrictions were imposed by a foreign country. Postal error occurred. A distribution was made on account of a levy under 6331, and the proceeds of the level levy had been returned to the taxpayer, or the party making the distribution to which the rollover relates delayed providing the information that the receiving plan or IRA required to complete the rollover, despite the taxpayer's reasonable efforts to obtain the information. Now, so this self-certification, um, Let's talk about this from the perspective of a return preparer. Somebody brings you a self-certification. It was drafted by, let's assume the preparer is a CPA. It was drafted by a solid tax attorney or a solid CPA that you know, you feel good about it. 
Can you just run with that? I think so. I think there's very little due diligence required on your part after that. Maybe reach out and just make sure you understand everything, but it shouldn't take a lot of time. Now, if the self-certification was drafted by the financial planner on CPA who made the mistake in the first place, I don't think you can blindly sign that tax return without doing the due diligence from the start. Okay, we've had this situation. Um, because if Mr. or Ms. X makes a mistake and then they are the ones doing the self-certification, you cannot just blindly take that. Um, you need to look at, you need to do due diligence and make sure that you're very comfortable with this, okay? So be very, be very attuned to this. I think we want to be extremely careful. I just want to make sure preparers don't get themselves sideways with the IRS in terms of a preparer penalty. Now, um, the rollovers, uh, the contribution must be made. So when you're working with this self-certification, um, the contribution must be made to the planner of the IRA as soon as practical after the reason or reasons listed in the prior slide no longer prevent the taxpayer from making the contribution. Deem satisfied if the contribution is made within 30 days after the reason or reasons no longer prevent the taxpayer from making the certification. Remember in the past the IRS has ruled that people can make a rollover after death if their intention is very clear. So they, they get their check from the HR department, um, they're headed over to their financial planner to roll it over. The financial planner has all the paperwork filled out, the taxpayer's spouse, the financial planner and the financial planner's assistant can all testify that was gonna happen that day and between walking out of the plant and getting to the financial planner's office, the taxpayer dies. Um, that you can fix. Now, you, I don't know if you can fix that under the self-certification, but you could certainly get a ruling to fix that. The other thing on the self-certification is the IRS must not have denied a waiver request with respect to the rollover of all or part of the distribution to, to which the contribution relates. Now, the self-certification is not a waiver by the IRS of the 68 rollover requirement. It's, the IRS can still audit you after the fact, okay? So the taxpayer can report this as a valid rollover unless later informed otherwise by the IRS. Uh, the IRS may consider whether a taxpayer's contribution meets the requirements for the waiver. The plan administrator IRA trustee may rely on the taxpayer's self-certification in determining whether the taxpayer has satisfied the, the conditions for a waiver of the 60-day requirement. Now, in the plan administrator, IRA trustee may not rely on the self-certification if they have actual knowledge that is contrary to the self-certification. So there's some due diligence on the part of the trustee. Remember, um, if you are under 59 and a half and you take money out of a Roth IRA, you can have a penalty, but that penalty does not apply generally to basis, okay? It's going to apply to fair market value. Now, there is a rule um, that's gonna mess that up a little bit. And let's just talk about that rule. Basically, there's a seasoning rule. That's when money can come out tax-free. If you, to take it out tax-free, you've had to hold it for five years, 
and be over 59 and a half. Okay, so you have to have held it for five years and you have to be over 59 and a half. If not, it's going to be taxable. Now, the five-year rule starts from the time you put the first dollar in a Roth IRA. So if you have a client right now who's 52 years old, she has no Roth IRA, she's not in a position to put any money in because every penny's going to help her children through college. Maybe you want it, but she says, as soon as I turn 56, kids will be done with school, I can start saving more. Get her to put $100 into a Roth IRA because that starts that five-year clock for all her future Roth IRAs. So that starts the five-year clock for all her future Roth IRAs. That's very important. Now, that's the seasoning rule. But let's talk about a more interesting rule called the penalty box rule. Here's the deal. This, all, this rule came into play in about 1999 because in, when the Roths first came out, people very quickly found out that if you did a Roth conversion, you got basis, and then you could pull your basis out without a penalty, which created a big loophole. So Congress came along and they said, is this, if you, if you think about it, and I actually have a chart on my website on this, um, if you have a 100% conversion and this distribution comes out within five years of the conversion, then you're going to have the 10% penalty. Now, if you reach 59.5, you're good. But if you're under 59.5 and you take the money out within five years of the conversion, you're going to get zinged with this penalty. So that, this makes it very difficult for people under 59.5 to do Roth conversions and to use the money in the Roth IRA to do that. So, so be very careful. Now that we can't recharacterize, you need to be very careful for anyone under 59.5. How are they going to pay their taxes? Now, remember, uh, when you have Roth IRAs, where you want to be, okay, the, the place you really want to be is you want to have held them for five years and be over 59 and a half. So you want to have held that for five years and be over 59 and a half. If you are under age 59 and a half and you have not held that for five years, then you run the possibility of both income tax and a penalty tax. So very important when you're working on drawdown strategies to make sure if somebody's going to retire at 55, how are you going to get them from age 55 to age 59 and a half? And make sure you have that nailed down. I think for the financial planners, these rules are extremely tricky, and you want to uh, make sure the client's CPA is very much involved. So if you're a CPA financial planner and you get these rules, that's great. Um, but if you're a financial planner who is not trained heavily in the tax law, um, by all means, reach out and put this burden on the client's CPA. Now let's talk a little bit about prohibited transactions. Prohibited transactions include most business transactions between an IRA and a disqualified person. Here's the big thing. The consequence of a PT is that the IRA is disqualified, gone. That property is deemed to have come out of the IRA and it's now in the palm of your hand. It's subject to income tax. If you're under 59 and a half, you get slammed with the 10% penalty. And if you go bankrupt, it's no longer protected by the bankruptcy law. So, I mean, this is as ugly as ugly can be. And so the IRA assets are treated as distributed as of the first day of the year in which the PT occurs. 
and the IRA owner must recognize the amount is distributed as income and pay income tax. Now, it's important to recall that there's a concept in the law called unrelated business income, or unrelated business taxable income. IRAs are subject to UBIT, um, basically under IRC Section 408D2. And what happens is, for example, if you invest in a master limited partnership, that's going to generate UBIT. Uh, the rationale here is that the tax exemption granted to the IRA should only be available for activities that further the reason the exemption was granted. And to have UBIT, the income must come from a trader business, the trader business is regularly carried on, and the activity is not substantially related to the tax income function of the organization. So be very careful. You don't want to get in UBIT because then you, in essence you end up paying tax twice and you receive no credit for the tax you paid inside the IRA when the distributions eventually come out of the IRA. So be very mindful and careful about that. Remember that for very large estates, you can still have a 40% estate tax and about a 24% effective federal income tax rate, um, but that's going to be very few estates. Now that the exemption is so high, we have to work on the strategy of do we let the IRA pass to the surviving spouse or do we put it in trust or do we let it go to children at the first death? Mathematically, in a first marriage, the best thing is a rollover. But sometimes that doesn't work. That doesn't work if uh, my surviving spouse might have creditor problems. It doesn't work if it's a second marriage or a third marriage. That doesn't work if my wife um, uh, might have a propensity to spend too much money or might otherwise make foolish investments. Um, so those are all things that you have to just figure out. You have to figure those out and, and work with the other members of the team to see how, how you're going to put this together. So it's more property law than tax law. Now keep in mind, when someone dies owning an IRA, distributions are going to occur after their death. There's a bright line at the required beginning date, and depending when you die, you're going to end up with a different result. So if somebody dies at age 65 and their IRA goes to a child, the child gets to take the money out over their life expectancy. If they die at 75 and their IRA goes to a child, same thing, child will go to a chart and take the money out over their life expectancy. If they die at 65 and the money goes to a designated beneficiary trust, they, the money comes out over the oldest beneficiary's life expectancy. If they die at 65 though and the money goes to their estate or to a trust that's not a designated beneficiary trust, then the money comes out over the five-year rule. Now, let's jump to somebody dying at age 75. They die at age 75, they leave the IRA, I know I'm being redundant here, to a child, child gets life expectancy. They leave it to a trust for that child, and that trust is perfectly drafted. It's a designated beneficiary trust. They get life expectancy. If the trust is not drafted properly, that's not a DBT, then the money comes out over what's called the ghost rule. So they're going to get to take the money out over the ghost life expectancy of that beneficiary. This is very important. We have covered a lot of ground today. What I really want to focus on is a couple of big things. One, we cannot recharacterize Roth conversions anymore. Two, the lower marriage penalty on the income tax side changes how we're going to approach Roth conversions and drawdown. Three, the increase in the 
exemption from the estate tax changes how we're going to view funding Roth IRAs to trust. The first marriage provided there is tremendous trust between the parties, uh, between husband and wife, you're going to be able to do a rollover. And I die, my wife rolls it over, later she leaves it to our children. Those are all very powerful things. Remember, um, curing rollovers, the self-certification, be very careful with that. That self-certification, in my opinion, should be drafted by either a tax lawyer or a CPA. And finally, um, what we want to talk about is uh, you have a tremendous opportunity in this whole area of IRAs to help clients with Roth conversions, to help clients get beneficiary designation forms right. Um, this is kind of a multidisciplinary thing where lawyers, CPAs, and financial planners need to work very closely together to get the right results for their clients. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler. Thank you for joining us today.